Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, July 19th, 2022, the 545th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and thank you to all of you who are listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber on the Substack. I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do that for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. That'll come out to under a quarter per episode. You'll get all the writing at the moment I publish, even if there's a paywall. It's all you. You're already past the paywall. And naturally, you will be supporting the show and my ability to devote the time I need to do the show. And also still do things like eat and put gas in my car. So thank you to all of you who are on board with that. Now, yesterday we were talking about the royal family 
and the United Nations and these international governing bodies and the people who carry forth the agenda of these governing bodies, like Dr. Deborah Burks, who decided it was her responsibility to the world. She is so heroic. She is so committed to saving everybody's lives, including everybody's grandmother's life, that she is willing to subvert the constitutional order of the United States by tricking through what she calls subterfuge. The president of the United States, the vice president of the United States and the administration as a whole also editing reports so that she could trick governors around the country and the general public as well. She thought all of that was necessary because her lockdown strategy was surely the best way to solve the spread of a very deadly pandemic. And to make sure no one interfered with her ability to lock down the country and to force people to mask up, she was willing to falsify documents, lie about data, and subvert the constitutional order. And she was willing to do it during a time that history will probably view as a time of war. And I know she's an elite. She looks like a very refined and well-mannered woman with the D and the R next to her name and the scarves and the fact that she is propped up on television as some sort of medical public health expert. And being an elite, it's impossible to actually do something wrong, especially since no one's going to punish you. And since people who want to be like elites will accept your explanations by virtue of you being an elite and they're wanting to be an elite. They're wanting to associate with elites. There's no way that someone like Dr. Deborah Burks could just lie to the president, lie to the public, lie to the governors in order to implement destructive policies because someone else wants her to. That's not possible. And it's not possible to do all that while the country is at war. No elite would ever do that because elites are the good people. Elites are the sorts of people we should strive ourselves to be. Therefore, they couldn't go out and just say, commit treason. It's just not possible. All of the mistakes, all of the falsifications, all of that we are told was justified because these are the best people in the world for the job and they are doing their best to save lives. So if they make any errors along the way, we don't actually need to investigate the errors. We need to accept that human error is a part of life and nobody's perfect. How could they have known it was a brand new virus, a brand new virus that Deborah Burks herself says came from the Wuhan lab already designed to be highly infectious. But the lab workers, they didn't make a mistake either. And there's certainly nothing wrong with the lab program itself. How are we supposed to save the world from a future pandemic if we don't create viruses capable of creating pandemics? Don't you get it? If we're going to save the world from pandemics, there have to be pandemics. And if there aren't pandemics that we can study, well, we have to, you know, create the pandemic and then we can save the world. So Deborah Burks in her own book has admitted to subverting the government and essentially admitted to committing treason. But 
One thing you might want to notice is that Deborah Burks's policies were right in line with Anthony Fauci's policies and to a large degree, Robert Redfield's policies. And they're right in line with Joe Biden's policies. They're right in line with the policies of the Democrat Communist Party. They're right in line with the policies of the public health community and with the universities and the media backed all that up. The tech community censored anything that disagreed. And of course, the World Health Organization was pretty well in line with what Deborah Burks wanted. And so was the World Economic Forum. And so was the United Nations. Now, was Deborah Burks the diabolical mastermind that through her subterfuge tricked not only the administration and the American public, but all of these international bodies around the world. Did she do that? Did this all come from her? Eh, Probably not. Did it come from the top? All those bodies that are aligned with that agenda and saying the same things? Well, that seems very likely. But Since that's a conspiracy theory, let's satisfy ourselves with the sort of answer that would satisfy child brains. All of these people, separate and distinct, are world-renowned experts at their jobs. They're doing the best they can to save lives and preserve societies, preserve economies. They didn't want hundreds of millions of people in the world to fall into extreme poverty due to lockdowns. They didn't want the increases in child abuse and domestic abuse, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, anxiety, depression, loneliness, isolation, suicide, attempted suicide, unemployment, despair. They weren't trying to cause any of that. I mean, sure. They have talked about those scenarios and they have wargamed them. And those scenarios have become parts of their agenda over the last few decades, but they didn't want any of it. You see, the agenda is created to avoid all those outcomes, even though those outcomes are almost certain to emerge over the time the agenda is being implemented. But all those experts just trying their best They're all separate. They just reached all the same conclusions. They did what they needed to do because surely the best possible strategy was to lock everybody down everywhere except for all the people that you need to actually continue society. Those we're going to call essential workers. We're going to make everybody else locked down. And then we're going to put a whole bunch of provisions in so that Like the right people, we don't want to get certain people too angry. So we're going to let them basically more or less do what they want to do, or we'll give them a good substitute. Like we'll just have Uber Eats bring them food so they can watch Netflix all day for two years. That's acceptable to a whole lot of people in this country. And so they had to make some concessions here and there. So it wasn't actually a full lockdown. So even in theory, the lockdown could have never worked. Of course, lockdowns for a nation were never practiced in history. So there was no reason to ever believe they would work. But the CCP did it. And then Italy, which is basically a CCP proxy, well, they did it too. And so if they're locking down, then surely the United States needs to lock down, even though the virus was in the country for four or five or six months prior to lockdown, and no one really noticed, no one really cared. Sure, coronavirus was in this country and spreading in November of 2019, and we didn't lock down until 
what, April of 2020, four, five, six months. But once everybody knows about the disease, that's when the disease actually starts working. Prior to everyone knowing about it, sure, people were getting sick, but then they were recovering. And so nobody even realized that it was a very deadly pandemic. So you see, it's kind of hard to avoid the fact that the virus, if it was around for four or five or six months before we did anything about it, either wasn't that transmissible or wasn't that deadly. But hey, what do I know? Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Nobody was saying that right up at the beginning of the pandemic, except I definitely was. I was saying that exact same thing by the end of April in 2020, because it was quite obviously true. And if all of that is true, then what in the world were we doing pretending we could mitigate the virus with masks and lockdowns? The virus was already in our society for months and months. We went on about our lives as normal. No one cared. No one was scared. But then our experts told us we had to lock down all over the world. All the experts just separately came to the same conclusion, something that had never been tried in the world. They realized that was the perfect strategy. They realized that lockdowns were the perfect strategy. And if it turns out not to work, well, then we can just add on masks, even though a hundred years of scientific history shows that masks don't work either. That's Dr. Deborah Burks and Anthony Fauci and to some extent Redfield and all of the Democrat Communist Party and all of the most powerful institutions in the world. They all lined right up with that strategy. Did it come from Burks? No, it didn't. Did they all figure that out separately? They just all reached the conclusions because they were doing the science so well, child brains. Is that what happened? Everybody just made a big boo-boo. It was an accident. No, that's not what happened. Now, no one wants to believe that there is a global order exerting control over different governments of countries across the world. Because that means that there is some higher force at play that these people have ignored and been told does not exist. They don't want to reframe their view of how the world works because that would mean on an important level, they've been tricked. They've given the benefit of the doubt to all of these people aligned with that agenda, not only collectively, but individually. They respect Dr. Burks. They respect Dr. Fauci. They respect Rochelle Walensky. They respect everyone in the Democrat Communist Party who still talks about how vaccines are very safe and effective, how masks somehow work, even though everyone knows they don't. And they respect all the people who pushed for long term lockdowns. In fact, there's not a single candidate on their side who can put any space between themselves and all of these policies. They are one and the same. Everyone went along with it. So to believe that all of the people they spent their time supporting and defending and empowering were actually working in service of a higher authority, trying to achieve a set of goals that they did not and would not state to the American public, well, that would mean that they all got tricked into supporting something they didn't realize they were supporting.
And they'll deny it, even though it's completely obvious. Every time you heard build back better, every time you heard about a new normal, that is the global agenda speaking through its mouthpieces, the people under control, the people tasked with executing and implementing parts of that agenda. And no matter how clear you make that, no matter how many times you show them documents from these global organizations that clearly state the agenda, they just can't believe it's real because that would mean they're wrong about way too much. Now, I want to play a little video clip that made its rounds on social media today. It actually made its rounds a couple of months ago on social media as well. But the video is actually older than that. And this is from when Klaus Schwab and the United Nations, Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum and the United Nations agreed to accelerate the 2030 agenda. This afternoon, the Secretary General and Klaus Schwab, the founder of the World Economic Forum, will sign will witness the signing of a memorandum of understanding on a strategic partnership between the UN and the World Economic Forum which outlines areas of cooperation to deepen engagement between the two institutions and to jointly accelerate the implementation of the 2030 agenda. So that's the little clip. And people on the Internet are incorrectly recontextualizing that around events that are happening right now. That is not the context of that statement. But let's actually read the context of the statement. So in June of 2019, this article appeared on the World Economic Forum's website. This is the 13th of June, 2019. It is still there. I imagine they will take it down sooner or later, but it's still there for now. The headline is World Economic Forum and UN Signed Strategic Partnership Framework. And they have some bullet points at the top. The UN Forum Partnership was signed in a meeting held at United Nations headquarters between UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres and World Economic Forum founder and executive chairman Klaus Schwab to accelerate the implementation of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. The partnership identifies six areas of focus financing the 2030 Agenda, climate change, health, digital cooperation, gender equality and empowerment of women education, and skills to strengthen and broaden their combined impact by building on existing and new collaborations. And they have a link to the full partnership framework. This is their press release. The World Economic Forum and the United Nations signed today a strategic partnership framework outlining areas of cooperation to deepen institutional engagement and jointly accelerate the implementation of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. The framework was drafted based on mapping of existing collaboration between the two institutions and will enable a more strategic and coordinated approach toward delivering impact. They're going to deliver impact. It's so great. It's like they're writing this specifically for Instagram influencers. Meeting the sustainable development goals is essential for the future of humanity. The World Economic Forum is committed to supporting this effort and working with the United Nations to build a more prosperous and equitable future, said Klaus Schwab, World Economic Forum founder and executive chairman. 
The new strategic partnership framework between the United Nations and the World Economic Forum has great potential to advance our efforts on key global challenges and opportunities from climate change, health and education to gender equality, digital cooperation and financing for sustainable development. Rooted in UN norms and values, the framework underscores the invaluable role of the private sector in this work and points the way toward action to generate shared prosperity on a healthy planet while leaving no one behind, said Antonio Guterres, UN Secretary General. So they are going to create the utopia they've always imagined and every communist has always imagined. And by the way, if you are imagining that sort of utopia as well, you, my friend, might be a communist. The strategic partnership framework will focus on the following areas. Financing the 2030 agenda. Mobilize systems and accelerate finance flows toward the 2030 agenda and the UN Sustainable Development Goals, taking forward solutions to increase long-term SDG investments and SDG is sustainable development goals. So where does the money come from? Well, it comes from nations around the world who fund the UN. And then it comes from their various partner organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, for instance. It comes from the World Economic Forum partner organizations, which are basically a thousand plus of the largest and most powerful corporations and institutions in the world, including media entities. So some of the funding is extracted from the people and then handed over to the UN and other global governing bodies. And it also comes from the most powerful people and companies in the world. Now, the people don't really have a say on whether or not their tax dollars will be funneled into the global governing bodies by their governments when those governments are under control of the evil twin faction in the United States and other countries. The evil twin faction, of course, being those people who are committed to the global agenda as opposed to national sovereignty and citizens being allowed to decide the path for their country. And then all of those countries, all of those individuals and all of those organizations all collectively help to implement the agenda of the United Nations, of the World Health Organization, of the World Trade Organization, and of course, of the World Economic Forum. The global evil twin is extracting money from the citizenry around the world and using it to change everything about societies. And they don't hide this. They say they want to fundamentally transform society. And they say that that's a good thing because everything needs to get better. Can't you see how bad everything is? And they have to convince you that everything is bad because otherwise no one would go along with any of this. Climate change. Achieve clear, measurable, and public commitments from the private sector to reach carbon neutrality by 2050. Help create public-private platforms in critical high-emitting sectors and scale up the services required to adapt to the impacts of climate change. 
So they take the money of citizens around the world facilitated by their governments that feeds in. And then what they do, the global governing bodies, is they create public private partnerships. So the global governing bodies agree to work with the biggest corporations around the world to implement this new society. And no one has any choice. By definition, that is fascism, but we don't use that definition of fascism anymore. Now, fascism is just a buzzword to call Trump supporters evil. On health, they want to support countries to achieve good health and well-being for all within the context of the 2030 agenda, focusing on key emerging global health threats that require stronger multi-stakeholder partnership and action. And remember, this is 2019 emerging global public health threats. We need a multi-stakeholder approach. So that means when we need contact tracing, well, we'd better get all the digital companies on board because we need the technology to be able to track everybody all the time, their vaccine status, where they are, who they might have come within six feet of you remember that very scientific social distancing the six feet was just pulled out of nowhere they literally decided that if they said 10 feet no one would do it because it's just too difficult but they also wanted the technology so that they could tell if someone was covid positive and then came within six feet of anyone else well everybody's phones would get an alert that says hey Someone with COVID was near you. You should probably quarantine for the next two weeks. And so then everybody just avoids everybody because no one wants to have to quarantine for absolutely no reason. But we know that they had those conversations publicly. That was the plan. They needed the digital people involved to do that. They needed tech involved to do that. But of course, tech isn't the only stakeholder. Pharma is a stakeholder. And because we're going to need vaccines to prevent future pandemics and surely to fix COVID, which would emerge just a couple of months later in China. Well, we're going to need pharma on board. And because pharma has all the solutions, we're going to need someone to implement those solutions. So let's make sure that we incentivize doctors and hospitals to go along with the program as well. And you can go on and on examining parts of the COVID response and you can think about what effect they have. You can think about how that effect was implemented. You can look at the organizations and individuals, the entities that implemented that response. And then you can see that most of them, if not all, are partners of the World Economic Forum, which is easy to check. You go on weforum.org, you go to their partners page, and you begin looking at their partners and you find, oh, look at that. Another one of the organizations involved with this whole thing is a partner of the World Economic Forum. Well, partners of the World Economic Forum have to comport to a code of conduct that the World Economic Forum sets out. And that code of conduct requires all these entities and individuals to implement and support the World Economic Forum's agenda at all times. They're not even allowed to speak badly about any element of the agenda. That's part of the code of conduct. And they can report one another if someone is suspected of doing that. And if that sounds like a conspiracy theory, I would encourage you to just go to the World Economic Forum's website and read it for yourself. I did an entire episode on this a few months ago, four or five months ago, maybe. It's not new. 
It's not a secret. And it's definitely not a conspiracy theory. It's literally what's on their website. And you can see them doing it in the real world. The ability of liberals to avoid all this stuff in total. And by the way, it's not just liberals, really any communist redeemable or not. I got to think there's not too many redeemable communists left at this point. I mean, what have you guys not supported by now? You already did Nazis and didn't bat an eye. So redeeming yourselves from this point forward is going to be very difficult. And I'm sorry to say it. I tried telling you all last year. It is what it is. Digital cooperation. Meet the needs of the fourth industrial revolution while seeking to advance global analysis, dialogue, and standards for digital governance and digital inclusiveness. So that basically means everyone in tech gets on the same page. And it's not just the censorship, although it's also the censorship. It surely is about censorship. But we're talking about people who put forth an explicitly transhuman agenda. Yuval Noah Harari is like the philosopher king of the World Economic Forum, and he is an avowed transhumanist. The World Economic Forum and the United Nations are pursuing this agenda together. There is no distinction between the two. When it comes to the agenda they're implementing, they're signed on to the same agenda. And sure, they may market it in different ways to different people, They might emphasize certain elements of the United Nations in the way the United Nations communicates the agenda. They might emphasize different elements in the way the World Economic Forum communicates the agenda, but the underlying agenda is the same. And it's no secret. It's right there in front of you. Gender equality and the empowerment of women. Foster multi-stakeholder partnerships and coalitions for full participation and equal opportunities of women at all levels of decision-making and for productive participation of women in the labor force and promote equal pay for work of equal value across sectors and occupations as well as within them. Now, who decides what work has equal value? It used to be markets would decide this, but they are eliminating markets and they are distorting markets. And they are also in the process of destroying entire industries with the ESG scores, environmental social governance scores, which is yet another arbitrary market distortion. They want women in the workforce because they don't want women raising children, kind of like their whole abortion agenda, which is part of this. To have gender equality, you must make abortion access easily and widely available. That is part of their pro-women policy. They want more abortions. Well, more abortions means fewer children and fewer women with children means more women in the labor force who are able to devote themselves instead of to the good of their children, to the good of the corporation. Feminists must have noticed men just loving how they get to devote their entire lives to toil and trouble and thought, gosh, maybe women could get to do that too. Wouldn't it be great if we had just an equal number of women down in the coal mine or working on an oil rig? Utopia is just around the corner. 
But no, you say that's not the kinds of jobs they want women to do. They don't want everything to be exactly the same. They just want it to be equal. So women aren't going to do those jobs because those jobs aren't appropriate for women. And in this context, yes, there are two genders. And yes, women aren't as strong. They're not as physically able to do those jobs for the most part. Not everyone. Not everyone. Stop crying. But equality takes on a different form there. The point is we're going to be able to find them jobs. And one of the places we're going to find them jobs is teaching everyone else's kids how great communism is. Yay, women. Won't it be great once we have equal pay for everyone across sectors and occupations as well as within them? Everybody will just get the same thing. But it's not communism, you see, it's stakeholder capitalism, which we're supposed to believe is the same as capitalism, except it just benefits the stakeholders and the stakeholders are all of the people aligned with the 2030 agenda, the World Economic Forum agenda, the global communist agenda. If the stakeholders were everybody, it would just be capitalism and they would leave the free market to do its thing. And the last part, education and skills promote public private partnerships to address global reskilling and lifelong learning for the future requirements for work and empower youth with competencies for life and decent work, decent work. Oh, <laughs> so it's not quite a utopia. They just want to make sure that everyone has decent work and they want to reskill people. Because if you've worked in a job for your entire life or even five or 10 years, you've developed a particular set of skills, not like Liam Neeson or anything, but for your job, you've developed a particular set of skills. Well, if they decide that your job shouldn't exist anymore, then your job won't exist anymore. And at that point, you will need to be reskilled so that your labor can be moved somewhere else. Do you want to move your labor to the new location? No, you don't. But you don't have a choice because your job doesn't exist anymore. Klaus Schwab decided, along with Yuval Noah Harari and their other incredible intellectuals that they're all surrounded with, that what you do for a job, what you find fulfilling in your work life is no longer relevant to the modern world. You've, in fact, become non-essential. If you were essential, you'd be able to work from home on your laptop or you'd represent low skilled wage labor and you're going to be replaced with a robot. And if that sounds like a terrible life, don't worry. They already shortened your lifespan with that mask and with the shots they forced you to take so that you could keep your low skilled wage employment until they replace you with a robot. The leadership across the United Nations will engage in and utilize the different platforms provided by the World Economic Forum to advance impact in the above areas. Both institutions will annually review the partnership to further streamline collaboration, take stock of results and identify additional areas to jointly invest efforts in. You can't end a sentence with a preposition. How did these geniuses miss that? There's actually a lot of typos in this thing. I read right past them for the most part. But there you have it. The United Nations 
that organization that we all view as the shining city on a hill that's up even higher than our own shining city on a hill. That's the place where the real powerful and perfect people go to make all the decisions for everybody. The UN, they're the ultimate power, just like the World Health Organization is the ultimate health power. They're able to tell everybody what the best thing is. They got all the experts together and now they have decided what everyone must do. What a great system. It's nothing like a monarchy. This is not feudalism at all. Klaus Schwab doesn't imagine that he's just the king of the world because he can set up partnerships with the United Nations and the World Health Organization and the National Governors Association and New York Times and BlackRock and all of their other partners. And because I know that a small percentage of you listening are actually getting on World Economic Forum, weforum.org and looking at the partners page. Check this out. I'm going to go through one letter of their partners. Okay, let's just do A. Here are their partners. These are World Economic Forum partners. They are aligned with the World Economic Forum's agenda, which is the UN's agenda, which is the agenda of the other global governing bodies, and they comport with the World Economic Forum Code of Conduct. A. Okay, we're only going to do A. Here it is, and it's going to take a while. A.P. Mahler Maersk. I believe that's the shipping company. A.A.R.P. That's the retirement group. A.B.B. Don't know what that is. Abbott Laboratories. Abbott did a whole lot of stuff for coronavirus, didn't they? A.B.N. AMRO. ABSA Group. Accenture. Access Holdings. Ackermans and Van Haren. A.C.W.A. Power. Adani Group. Aditya Birla Group. Adobe, Advantage Partners, Acon Group, Agia, Agon, Africa Finance Corporation, Africa Development Bank Group, African Rainbow Minerals, African Risk Capacity, Aegeus, Agility, Agroamerica, AIB Group, AIG, Air Liquid, Airbus, Acre, Al Futame Trading Group, Al Nawais Investments. I don't know if I'm saying these right, you know? Al Sacker for Food Industries. Don't know what that is. Al Othman Holding. Alberta Investment Management Corporation. Alcon. Algebris Investments. Al Gihaz. Alibaba Group. Alex Partners. Alliance with a Z. Allied Bank. Allied Digital Services. Al Sara Investment Group. Al Shia Group. Uh, Al Lula. Is that what that says? No idea. Looks weird. Go check it out for yourself. Aminat Holdings, Amara Raja Group, Amazon, Amcor, America Moville, American Heart Association, American Tower, Amerisource Bergen, AMTD, Analog Devices, Angelacusis Group, Anglo-American, Anglobal, Anheuser-Busch InBev, Ancorgas. Anton Infrastructure Partners, Antwerp Port Authority, Aparna Enterprises, APCO Worldwide, Apex Brazil, APG Asset Management, Apis Partners Group, Apollo Hospitals Enterprise, Apollo Tires, Appen, Apple, A Priori Technologies, Arcelor Mittal, don't know what that is, Ariston Group, Arm, okay, great name for a company, Arm. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm going to name my uh, new company Fingernail. Arup Group, I guess. Asia World Group, ASO Corporation, Aster DM Healthcare, Astra, AstraZeneca, ASYAD, Oric Capital Group, Orobindo Pharma, Automatic Data Processing, Automation Alley, Aviva Group, Avison Young, AXA, AXA, Axis Bank, and Axtria. Those are just the A's. That's like what? 60, 70, 80 groups, some of them just mega corporations, AIG, Apple, Amazon, different world banks, specifically in Africa, all of them World Economic Forum partners, all of them ascribing to the World Economic Forum code of conduct. Now, as I mentioned, with the World Economic Forum and the United Nations and various other organizations describing the agenda in certain different ways, it should be clear that all of this is also the Great Reset agenda. And if you think that's a conspiracy theory, then tell me why Klaus Schwab wrote a book called COVID-19, The Great Reset. In fact, if you search the Great Reset on the World Economic Forum site, the first entry you get has a headline, Driving Growth Using Practical Wisdom, Japan's Perspectives. And if you click into the report, the second paragraph of the introduction reads, The COVID-19 crisis has created an unprecedented series of challenges, whether it be in our daily lives, society at large, the global economy, or the future of the planet as a whole. To address this, the World Economic Forum has initiated the quote-unquote Great Reset initiative to shape a more sustainable, inclusive, and resilient world based on stakeholder principles. Now, I know I'm a very easily tricked conspiracy theorist, but are they trying to trick themselves too? Now, as you might guess, NBC Universal is, of course, a World Economic Forum partner listed on the World Economic Forum website. So let's check in with NBC Universal's mouthpiece, MSNBC. So we can enlighten ourselves on how things are going for the media. This is Katie Turr. There was just a Gallup poll out today that shows that the trust in in media and newspapers and television is hitting an all-time low. People don't trust us. They don't believe us. And it makes me wonder if this job, as I'm currently doing it, is effective Uh, But if it's doing more harm than good, I don't have a good answer for that. I have a good answer for that, Katie. You are within a few months or maybe a couple of years of your career being totally over and your life as you know it being over. Because sooner or later, the society at large is going to understand that they were lied to. They were deceived. They were tricked on purpose by people exactly like you. They're going to remember who told them all of this bullshit for so long. And it's not even just the simple bias that exists in the day-to-day reporting and the regular 24-hour news cycle we always find ourselves in the midst of, 
especially if you're a person who is addicted to the central narrative or who just pays attention to this from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to sleep like me, and you are exposed constantly to the central narrative, though not actually believing any of it. Either way, it's not just the small things. They have lied about the most important issues in everyone's lives, and they've done it for years. They've done it on purpose, and they've done it to achieve ends that they themselves are either lying about or unaware of altogether. It's possible that some of these media figures are so clueless and so dumb and so brainwashed that they don't realize there is a higher agenda at work that is affecting what they themselves are producing. And one of the issues they lied the most about was the effect of Russian influence on the 2016 election. You remember Russiagate, that complete and total farce that they cannot prove in any way whatsoever. And it turns out that the people yelling loudest about Russiagate are the ones responsible for lying to the country about Russiagate. Now, think about all of that reporting on Russiagate throughout 2016 and 2017 and 2018 and still some of it to this day, even though it's all been disproven, the Pulitzer Prize Board awarded their lofty reporting prizes to reporters at the New York Times and the Washington Post. And Donald Trump has consistently highlighted this and suggested strongly that the Pulitzer Prize rescind those awards based on the fact that the reporting those awards were given for was all based on lies. It's all been disproven. Well, the Pulitzer Prize board decided that they were going to take these claims seriously and refute them. So they had an investigation and here's what they found. This is a statement that they released on Sunday, a statement from the Pulitzer Prize board. The Pulitzer Prize board has an established formal process by which complaints against winning entries are carefully reviewed. In the last three years, the Pulitzer Prize Board has received inquiries, including from former President Donald Trump, about submissions from The New York Times and The Washington Post on Russian interference in the U.S. election and its connections to the Trump campaign, submissions that jointly won the 2018 National Reporting Prize. These inquiries prompted the Pulitzer Prize Board to commission two independent reviews of the work submitted by those organizations to our national reporting competition. Both reviews were conducted by individuals with no connection to the institutions whose work was under examination, nor any connection to each other. The separate reviews converged in their conclusions that no passages or headlines, contentions or assertions in any of the winning submissions were discredited by facts that emerged subsequent to the conferral of the prizes. The 2018 Pulitzer Prizes in National Reporting stand. So they are doubling down on the Pulitzer Prizes they awarded for reporters who communicated an entirely false story that was fed to them by the political parties, elements of our law enforcement and intel communities, and members of the American government who clearly have no problem in violating their oath to the Constitution, like Adam Schiff, for instance. But let's break their response down just a little bit, okay? So they write, 
Both reviews were conducted by individuals. So they have two reviews and they're talking about individuals. Now, could they be using individuals in a collective sense? Maybe there was a team of two or three on each one. Maybe, but they're saying individuals and they probably mean that two different people, both independently reviewed the work. Okay. They say they have no connection to the institutions whose work was under examination. So they are not connected to the New York times or the Washington post. They do not detail who these people are or what other connections they might have. So they're not in the New York times and the Washington post, but are they at Politico? Are they at NBC news? Are they at the LA times? Are they members of the political community? Are they members of the deep state? Are they members of the intelligence or law enforcement community? Are they the very people who helped launch all of the Russiagate nonsense in the first place? We don't know, but there's nothing about this description to suggest they aren't somehow tied in to that original reporting or the dissemination of the original story to the reporters. You can look at CNN and MSNBC. They have members or former members of the intelligence agencies and the FBI on their shows all the time to continue these stories along. How do we know they're not the people who performed this very thorough investigation? So they have no connections to the New York Times, the Washington Post or each other. That's all we know. The Pulitzer Prize commissioned this investigation. They went out and sponsored and hired these individuals not connected to the Washington Post or the New York Times or each other. And they investigated the stories to see if the individual pieces that were awarded prizes got something critically wrong. And maybe their focus on those individual pieces is appropriate in some way for their purposes, but it still doesn't really contend with the fact that the entire story overall was false from the beginning. And they reached the conclusion that no passages or headlines, contentions or assertions in any of the winning submissions were discredited by facts that emerged subsequent to the conferral of the prizes. Now, what in the world could they possibly mean by that? They're certainly not accounting for any of the facts that have emerged in the Durham filings and those cases. Michael Sussman was acquitted by a jury, but it's not because the facts as asserted in those trials were somehow disproven and the acquittal doesn't disprove them. This claim here seems to essentially be there is nothing new in the central narrative that disputes these old pieces of the central narrative. Therefore, these old pieces are true. But of course, the problem is they're not looking beyond the central narrative. If you're not looking beyond the central narrative, then you can't disprove anything within the central narrative. The central narrative is, is its own closed system. That's where the information bubble exists. If you can't go outside the information bubble, then of course you can't prove anything wrong that's inside it. And that's one of the biggest problems in the public conversation now, because so many people inside the information bubble actually think that they are getting all the information and no one is more convinced of the truth of that concept than our intellectual elites. And Donald Trump released a statement in response to this. He wrote, 
The Pulitzer board has taken away any shred of credibility it had left with its response regarding the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting, which was awarded to the New York Times and the Washington Post for blatant fake news. Instead of acting with integrity and providing transparency, the Pulitzer board is running cover for the biggest reporting failure in modern history, the fake Russia, Russia, Russia collusion hoax. Why would the Washington Post or the New York Times ever want to admit their obvious mistakes and come clean when their false reporting is being guarded and awarded by the Pulitzer Prize, which at one point actually meant something? These outlets should hand back their prizes without notification from Pulitzer, which would be the honorable thing to do. The only way the New York Times and the Washington Post should get a possible Pulitzer Prize would be in a new category, disinformation, for helping to perpetrate a false story created and peddled by crooked Hillary, the DNC, and certain lowlife Democrats. Also, it's worth adding, certain lowlife Republicans. The truth is that the 2018 Pulitzer Prize was handed out for reporting that merely parroted political disinformation, disinformation that we know was fabricated by foreign operatives and my political opponents. If the Pulitzer Prize has become a blatant acknowledgement of false liberal political propaganda, then the Pulitzer Prize board should just say so. Instead, they hide their supposed independent investigations in a veil of secrecy so the public cannot know the truth. So to Katie Turr, it is no mystery why the public distrusts the media. Yes, you are doing your jobs wrong and everyone knows it. In fact, you argued for the allowance to do your jobs that way just a few years ago. Remember all of those articles that were written about how objectivity in journalism is no longer a thing they should strive for. Their work should be geared toward justice and enacting justice. And of course, they don't mean actual justice where things are fair and based on the facts, regardless of who's saying them or which parties are doing which things. They mean advancing the cause of social justice as defined by those aligned with the global communist order, those aligned with the World Economic Forum. And the fact that they all work for World Economic Forum partners should be a hint about who's pulling the strings and who's setting the standards for reporting. Now, I don't actually believe that objectivity in journalism is necessary. The solution is to not treat these sources like they are authoritative. That was where we went wrong. We can just wipe out the idea of people being objective. I try to look at things as objectively as I can, but I still have a worldview. I still have opinions and I'm going to express all of that. And if you're listening to the show or you're reading my work, you should understand my point of view as part of your process of interpreting the information I'm giving you. And over time, you'll decide for yourself whether I am operating in good faith, whether I am doing my best to be honest and communicate things as honestly as I see them, or whether I'm trying to trick you and that I have a certain agenda and I'm just trying to push you in that direction. But either way, that's part of how you should see what it is I'm doing. You can't avoid that. 
It's part of reality. And it's part of reality for these people as well. But I'm not pretending that I am the authoritative source. I am me with my viewpoint, viewing the information that comes to me in the world in a way that helps me understand the bigger picture and hopefully helps you understand the bigger picture. But that's not what the New York Times and the L.A. Times and the Washington Post and Politico and the Atlantic and all these terrible publications are doing. They are not only pretending to be objective, they're pretending to be elite and objective. They are not only objective, they are the experts. So if you doubt them, if you argue with them, then you are arguing with objective reality. And you are arguing with the people most prepared to explain objective reality to you. They want to have it both ways. They want to say that their work should be geared toward enacting social justice, but also their objective reporters just giving you the proper view of objective reality. And they receive all of that from the authoritative source. They are really just communicating on behalf of the authoritative source, like a favor to you. They're able to actually receive knowledge from the authoritative source. You're not, but they are able to give you that knowledge and frame it for you so that your little mind will understand it. And so you should just trust them because they are communicating what the authoritative source says. Now, am I switching subjects without a segue or am I segueing brilliantly by sharing something else the authoritative source was just incredibly wrong about. This is from the LA Times last Thursday. California went big on rooftop solar. Now that's a problem for landfills. California has been a pioneer in pushing for rooftop solar power, building up the largest solar market in the US. More than 20 years and 1.3 million rooftops later, the bill is coming due. Beginning in 2006, the state focused on how to incentivize people to take up solar power, showered subsidies on homeowners who installed photovoltaic panels, but had no comprehensive plan to dispose of them. Now panels purchased under those programs are nearing the end of their typical 25 to 30 year life cycle. Many are already winding up in landfills, where in some cases they could potentially contaminate groundwater with toxic heavy metals such as lead, selenium, and cadmium. Sam Vanderhoof, a solar industry expert and chief executive of Recycle PV Solar, says that only one in 10 panels are actually recycled, according to estimates drawn from International Renewable Energy Agency data on decommissioned panels and from industry leaders. Man, someone should start a government program to pay that guy a whole lot more money to recycle solar panels. Is that going to be the solution? Ha, bet it is. Oh, so they created a problem and now they want more money to fix that problem? And the problem that they created isn't actually a brand new problem. It's part of the problem that the solution was there to fix. So not only did they not solve the original problem, they exacerbated the original problem. And the only solution is to double down on the ideology and get a whole lot more funding. And where's that funding going to go? Oh, probably to the same partners that created the problem. 
The looming challenge over how to handle truckloads of waste, some of it contaminated, illustrates how cutting-edge environmental policy can create unforeseen problems down the road. Oh, wow. What an admission. The industry is supposed to be green, Vanderhoof said, but in reality, it's all about the money. California came early to solar power. Small governmental rebates did little to bring down the price of solar panels or encourage their adoption until 2006, when the California Public Utilities Commission formed the California Solar Initiative. That granted $3.3 billion in subsidies for installing solar panels on rooftops. The measure exceeded its goals, bringing down the price of solar panels and boosting the share of the state's electricity produced by the sun. Because of that and other measures, such as requirements that utilities buy a portion of their electricity from renewable resources, solar power now accounts for 15% of the state's power. But as California barreled ahead on its renewable energy program, focusing on rebates and, more recently, a proposed solar tax, questions about how to handle the waste that would accrue years later were never fully addressed. Now, both regulators and panel manufacturers are realizing that they don't have the capacity to handle what comes next. This trash is probably going to arrive sooner than we expected, and it is going to be a huge amount of waste, said Sarasu Duran, an assistant professor at the University of Calgary's Haskane School of Business in Canada. But while all the focus has been on building this renewable capacity, not much consideration has been put on the end of life of these technologies. And in the interest of time, I'm just skipping down a bit. Feel free to read the article on your own. Only about $2 to $4 worth of materials are recovered from each panel. The majority of processing costs are tied to labor. And Orban said even recycling panels at scale would not be more economical. More research on photovoltaic panels is focused on recovering solar grade silicon to make recycling economically viable. That skews the economic incentives against recycling. The National Renewable Energy Laboratory estimated that it costs roughly $20 to $30 to recycle a panel versus $1 to $2 to send it to a landfill. Most experts assume that is where the majority of panels are ending up right now. But it's anyone's guess. Natalie Click, a doctoral candidate in materials science at the University of Arizona, said there is no uniform system, quote, for tracking where all of these decommissioned panels are going. So isn't that incredible? The green solution of solar panels is actually terrible for the environment. Well, just last week, the European Union determined they have declared that Nuclear and natural gas are now green energies. It's too bad they didn't realize that before they put all of this solar into place, because it turns out the solar just makes the problem worse. But so do windmills. Windmills make the problem worse, too. And neither source actually produces enough electricity to keep society going. And that's why California's electric grid is an absolute mess. And just briefly on the windmills, this is from Bloomberg in early 2020. Wind turbine blades can't be recycled, so they're piling up in landfills. A wind turbine's blades can be longer than a Boeing 747 wing. So at the end of their lifespan, they can't just be hauled away. 
First, you need to saw through the lissom fiberglass using a diamond encrusted industrial saw to create three pieces small enough to be strapped to a tractor trailer. The municipal landfill in Casper, Wyoming is the final resting place of 870 blades whose days making renewable energy have come to an end. The severed fragments look like bleached whale bones nestled against one another. That's the end of it for this winter, said waste technician Michael Bratvold, watching a bulldozer bury them forever in sand. We'll get the rest when the weather breaks this spring. Tens of thousands of aging blades are coming down from steel towers around the world, and most have nowhere to go but landfills. In the U.S. alone, about 8,000 will be removed in each of the next four years. Europe, which has been dealing with the problem longer, has about 3,800 coming down annually through at least 2022, according to Bloomberg NEF. It's going to get worse. Most were built more than a decade ago when installations were less than a fifth of what they are now. And the article goes on. But we also know that those wind turbine blades leave piles of dead birds below them. The American Bird Conservancy predicts that if 20% of the nation's electricity comes through wind power, it will potentially kill at least 1 million birds per year by 2030. So wind and solar are not as green and renewable as we were told. Turns out they're terrible for the pollution factor because they don't last forever. And they also kill tons and tons of birds and contaminate groundwater. Good stuff. But the real kicker is that they don't even solve the energy problem. We didn't have an energy problem. We have plenty of energy in this country that can be produced right now and be produced long term. We have two to three Saudi Arabia's of resources under American soil, but we can't use it. We can't use it. Because Klaus Schwab and the United Nations and all the environmentalists who think they're taking us into this technocratic utopia have decided that actually powering the world for the good of the world's people is not a good project. In fact, the world has way too many people. But fine, let's say we make all our electricity from the dirty sources, coal. Natural gas. Oh, maybe nuclear. Now, well, now nuclear is green. So maybe that could be part of a long-term solution. I wonder why environmentalists weren't on that for all this time. But if we can't fix that, at least we can stop driving cars that are powered by fossil fuels. Let's drive electric cars. That's going to fix absolutely everything. Well, here is Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg not knowing basic facts and getting absolutely obliterated by Thomas Massey. And by the way, I think I really like Thomas Massey. He hasn't bothered me once yet, and he's usually pretty good. But I'm open to change that opinion. A household uses 17% of their electricity for air conditioning. And um, that would mean the average household uses... 1,870 kilowatt hours per year for air conditioning. If that average household plugged in electric cars, do you know how much more electricity they would use in comparison to the air conditioning that air conditions their whole house? No, but again, I would emphasize it will well, let be me help less you. Let me help you with overall. that first before we go on because the numbers are important. It would take four times as much electricity to charge 
the average household's cars as the average household uses on air conditioning. Do you think that could be? So if we reach the goal by 2030 that Biden has of a 50 percent adoption instead of 100 percent adoption, that means the average household would use twice as much electricity charging one of their cars as they would use for all of the air conditioning that they use. Got that. So Massey is saying on average, charging one electric car over the course of the year. And he's saying the average household has two cars. So 50% adoption would be the same as charging just one of those cars. Charging just that one car for the year uses the same amount of electricity as all of the air conditioning that house uses throughout the year. Now, when I think about the electricity that I use throughout the year, I would guess that the air conditioning is the primary drain on that resource. And if the average household already has a rate of 17% and then you add two electric cars, that 17%, whatever amount that is, you quadruple that and then just add it into the mix. That's how much more electricity the household would need. So how much more expensive is that to swap all that into electricity? That's just problem one for the household. The bigger problem is how are we going to produce that much electricity once everyone has electric cars? And it turns out that their solutions are actually not as effective and just as damaging to the elements of the environment they pretend they're preserving. Now, if these people weren't elite and if they didn't have the global governing bodies above them telling them that all this was right, pushing it out through media, censoring it on tech, adding it into the plot lines for television shows and movies, sending out the army of useful idiots, the musicians and the athletes and the Instagram influencers to tell everybody how they need everything to be sustainable. No one would ever believe something this blatantly stupid. And it is stupid. There's not a smart version of this. You're just supposed to be scared of smoke going from a car and a factory into the sky. You're supposed to be disgusted by that and think that is the worst of all outcomes. So anything must be better. Oh, the sun is going to power us. The wind is going to power us. It's clean when it comes down. That must mean it's clean the whole time. We just have to capture it. And then since the car just exists, but this one's electric instead of gas powered, that means they're exactly the same, except we can get this car powered by all the clean energy coming down from the sky and we just capture it. Except electric cars and the batteries actually need rare earth minerals that they have to mine, that slaves mine. Why doesn't anyone tell us this? Why do all the experts tell us that the world just is not how it is? Well, like Dr. Deborah Burks, the truth is they're tricking you on behalf of someone else and you could see all of it but you refuse not to because it's going to make you question too many other things about itself. Isn't that true, commies? See, once you get to this point, it's pretty hard to be redeemable. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president.
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!